A reading from Luke 19, um, verse 37 to 40. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Um, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Father, we ask and we pray that you would speak and that we listen to you. Um, Lord, in these times, with all that's taking place around us, we need an experience of you that outstrips our fear and anxiety. So would you give that to us now? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The, um, the repeated word, or it seems to be one of the repeated words, there's a, there's a handful of repeated words. And one of them in this season, in the last few weeks, um, has been the word unprecedented. Uh, if you think back and you just ask yourself, how many times have I heard somebody say that we are living in unprecedented times? Um, I was on a phone call this week uh, with other New York City pastors, and um, one of the things that a, a prominent church in the city, who I feel like has seen it all, um, one of their staff members talked about how they dug up their old 9-11 playbook, um, you know, their response to 9-11, and they realized as they went through their old 9-11 playbook that very few things apply to this present moment. There's just so many things that's different. I, I, um, you, we were attending a church in Houston that had this incredible response to Hurricane Harvey. And I reached out to the pastor, um, asking him what's the same and what's different, and he said, you know, so much of this is all brand new. Um, we can't mobilize relief efforts. Um, no, one, no one can go out. It's a completely different thing. And even being in, in Houston during that time, one of the things I remember is after day five, the water started to recede. And I feel like we're only three weeks in, and we don't know how much longer this could go for. Um, there's so much about this time that it truly is unprecedented. However... Many times we hear it, it seems to be only more and more true. And so the question is, what are we calling our church to in these unprecedented times? What do we want our church to be about? And the only thing, um, the only thing that we say for this holy week that we want to focus on is unprecedented prayer. We want to have an unprecedented commitment to prayer. We want this week to be this pivot moment in your life and in the life of our church to be a time where we double down on everything that we say that we believe in. And the way to that is um, committing deeply to pray. Um, today is Palm Sunday. It's the start of Holy Week. Um, Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And um, we start this Holy Week as a staff, we, we, we were talking about how this is clearly not the Holy Week that we were expecting. Um, even a couple weeks ago, we were having conversations about the kind of Easter celebration we wanted to have. Um, as someone who gets excitable, as soon as somebody starts talking about 
fun things, I'm, I'm quick to, to pile on and we were talking about bouncy houses and outdoor festivals and a special location and venue and sandwiches from Morty's, a staff favorite. And all of that are things we can't have. Um, but even in the midst of everything that's taking place, I wonder to myself, is it possible that everything we lost might not compare to everything that we can stand to gain if in this moment we double down and press deeply into our call to pray with unprecedented commitment. And you're probably wondering yourself, where am I going to find the energy to do that? Um, my current days are filled with trying to manage eight things that I didn't have to manage when this first started. I'm both trying to, to do my full-time job, while at the same time trying to care for my kids. And I think this passage this morning, this triumphal entry, gives us something. Gives us something to look and find energy. I think in this passage we see three things that can, can show us a way forward. First, we find this passage understanding the suffering that we see. The second, this passage talks about the king who came. And last, from it, we could be able to determine our role in this fight. So first, the suffering we see. You know, a year ago, I got the chance to be able to speak to our church on Palm Sunday. And I, and I said that um, if you want to understand a, a group of people, you have to understand the trauma that they've experienced. You have to understand the suffering that they've, that they've been through. And um, if you want to understand their poetry, if you want to understand their buildings, you have to understand their suffering. You can't understand Chicago and its architecture if you don't know about the Chicago fire, the great Chicago fire. Um, you won't understand airline policies and, and why we are limited to how much shampoo we can bring on if you don't understand what happened on 9-11. And if you want to understand the backdrop of this text and the hope of the people who were waiting for, for a king to come, a savior to come, you have to understand the suffering that they've endured centuries before. For the Israelites, the moment of greatest suffering was this Babylonian exile that took place in 586 B.C. And in this moment, um, their, their great cities were destroyed, their people were captured, and they were brought into exile in Babylon. And in response to that, the prophets that followed asked the question over and over again, God, how could you allow something like this to happen to your people? And we're in this moment right now where suffering is pervasive. I can't jump on Twitter without seeing heartbreaking story after heartbreaking story. Everywhere we look, it seems we're only getting more and more bad news. And what the passage advises us to do in the thick of everything that's difficult, I think, is this. We have to look for and we have call out to the king. We have to look for and we have to call out to the king. Because what this passage and what the people of Israel understood, that if they were doing it right, um, suffering can deepen and sharpen their understanding of reality. Suffering can deepen 
and sharpen understanding of reality. And we have a choice that we have. We're constantly moving. Things are dynamic. Um, we move towards pressing in and trusting the words of Scripture and the invitation to, to call out to God. Or will we just throw up our hands and say, this suffering is way beyond anything that I understand, and so all I'm going to do is dismiss. Will we press in or will we dismiss? And so how do we focus on the king? How do we call out to? How do we know about him? And we have to see um, that this passage talks about a king who came. We have to see a king who came. Um, that's part two. So verse 38 reads this. Verse 37 reads this. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Um, verse 37 specifically mentions this Mount of Olives. Um, and I think it's significant. So Mount of Olives is, is essentially this high hill that sits above the city of Jerusalem on the, on the east side. And it's, it's a significant um, terminal that connects Jerusalem to the other cities. Um, at the time and, and, and the periods before that, it was used as, um, as a way to communicate to the outside world. They would, they would light signal fires. Um, it's very possible that the prophet Isaiah, when he talks about this coming announcement of, of a coming king, had this mountain in mind as the place where the king would come. And it's in this strategic location that, that Jesus enters from doing ministry in the north of, of Israel, making his way down into Jerusalem. And, and this is the strategic place where he comes to enter. It says, already down on the way, of, on, on the way down the Mount of Olives. And what you find in this procession with, with people paying homage to to Jesus is that it's this, it's this almost royal, it's this event with royal undertones. He's coming down, it, it, there's, there's, kingly, there's kingly images that are littered throughout this passage. And I'm reminded of, of this critique that's often given against people of faith. Um, people would often say, that, you know, I don't believe in Christianity because all faiths are essentially the same. Um, all faiths are, are just ways of trying to get to the same thing. And the image they use is that it's almost as if all the great religions are on the bottom of a mountain and God is on top and every religion has different ways of making their way up the mountain. It's just different paths. And what we find is that metaphor just doesn't hold with Christianity at all. Because what we believe, and in many ways what this passage um, articulates and displays, is that what we believe is that our king, our king is not a king that's high on the mountain, that's calling us up, asking us to perform our way and work our way up to him. What we find is that our king is a king who makes his way down the mountain. He makes his way down the mountain of Olives. And what we find is that in moments of great theological crisis, 
In moments of great theological crisis, he doesn't offer us a theological system and structure to be able to explain away our deepest suffering. What we find is that instead of offering us a, a, a philosophical set of answers, that what he gives us is, is, is the, the fullness of his presence. What Jesus does is he walks his way down into our midst. And we have to see that the only way that we can, we can have confidence enough and the energy enough to be able to pray to God in the thick of suffering is that what we believe is that our King has come. He's made his way down the mountain. He's made his way down so that we can actually get to know him. But not only is the King who arrives to his people, not calling his, his people forward and to work their way up to him, but he's a king who arrives down to his people. Part two of this is that we see a king who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 38 reads, And the people in the multitude, in verse 37, were saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The, the name of the Lord is this common ref refrain. That, that's filled in, in throughout scripture, but the question is, what does it mean? What is this name of the Lord? Um, what, what does it signify? What's it, you know, wh what is it, what is it, um, what were they feeling and hearing in, in the original audience when they heard something like this? Um, and, and if you do a quick search, and you see some of the verses that come up, you see verses like Proverbs 18, where it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are saved. Um, Psalm 79 says, ascribe, um, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. And it talks about power. It talks about security. But what you realize is that it's a sum of so many different things, but what it ultimately embodies is God's unique character. Um, you know, we are so prone to want to define um, God. Right? We, we want to tell God, this is who, you, who, who I want you to be. I need you to play by those rules. Um, in, in any relationship, right? I mean, I think about a romantic relationship. When we start dating somebody, the trap can come with, you start dating based on a collection of ideas of what you think the other person embodies. Right? You, you know, you watch some movies growing up and they're formative and then you you pick out characteristics of the type of person that you think that you would want to end up with. And then you see somebody, you meet them, and then you think, oh, okay, this fits the set of ideals that I, I always wanted for myself to be able to be connected to. The problem is when you get married, um, what you need, what needs to happen is you realize that the other person needs to be given the space to self-define. Right? They need to be able to say, hey, this is who I actually am. I know what you thought about me, and I know the expectations and the obligations you placed on me, but, but what I need for my flourishing is for you to give me space to be able to, to, be able to define for myself who I actually am. Um, I can't live with, with your expectations and obligations placed on me. And... And what we do with our significant others, we can often do to God, and we can say, hey God, this is what I want you to be. This is who I expect you to be. And if you, if you cannot be this for me, I cannot follow you. 
But what we find in Scripture is God does not play by those rules. And often, in, um, time and again throughout Scripture, what, he, what he's doing is he's des- describing to his people who he is, and it's even better than what they hoped for. He says, um, the Lord's steadfast in love and full of compassion, um, gracious and compassionate. And all of the unique characteristics that describe God is, is captured in the reality of his unique character. And the short for hand, shorthand for that is the name of the Lord. And, and what this Christian, and what these, these Israelites, whenever they invoke the sense of this name of the Lord, it carries the history of that relationship. They were a stubborn, stubborn people. And in their history, um, what marked their history was rescue after rescue. Rescue after rescue. Every time they made a mistake, God would rescue them. And every time they would say the name of the Lord, it, it captured that history of these moments in time when they were rescued by their God. And the Christian writers pick up on this after realizing what Jesus had done in that first Holy Week. They talk about how this Jesus has come in the name of the Lord. And not only that, but, but this Jesus now captures the full hope of their longing. Philippians 2 reads like this, Therefore, oh, we'll start with verse 8, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what you find is that the first worshipers who were worshiping Jesus when he comes down Mount of Olives, and they're saying, blessed is the name of the Lord, after, after that first Holy Week, when they see all that he had done, they'd realized, oh my goodness, it's his name. His name has power. The name of Jesus has power to rescue and deliver us. And what the, the, the first Christians realize is not only is in, in not only in Jesus do we have an understanding of God's unique character embodied in, in, in human flesh and form, not only that, but the followers understood that those who knew him and followed him and then surrendered their lives to him had unique access to him. And what they believed is that when they called on the name of Jesus. It had real power. It had real power to shape situations. It had real power to, to provide rescue in times of great distress. And so not only is there suffering that we see, not only do we find our hope in the fact that there was a king who came, but we realize that our role in this, our role in this fight, our role in the middle of this intense Suffering is to call out on the name that has power. I love the way that this passage ends. It says um, there's two responses when we realize that that Jesus and the name of Jesus is real power. And and it's this. um, The disciples, and and it says here, the multitude were crying, Blessed is the king who who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here are the two responses. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The first response is, one, when you realize that the name of Jesus has power, is you can dismiss it completely. You can say, this isn't, this isn't what we expected. 
this doesn't make any rational sense. Um, we just needed to dismiss the possibility that calling out to Jesus is any real power at all. Um, but it goes on, and Jesus answers them, I tell you, if, this, the, if my disciples don't cry out, um, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would call out. And what I love about this is that it, it shows that the worship and the praise and the crying out to Jesus is inevitable. It will happen. Whether we jump on it or we don't, all of nature will cry out and will call out to Jesus. And the opportunity we have is to be a part of it as well. And this is what we hope to do this week. Um, we're calling this the Holy Week of Prayer. And um, in the intensity of, of the situations and the sufferings, we want, we want more than anything, this to be a pivot moment in your life and in the life of the church. We're going to call out, we're going to cry out. We're going to believe in a God who hears us. We're going to believe in the power and the name of Jesus. Every day this week, there's going to be an opportunity for us to gather together in prayer. Um, whether that's just all of us individually uh, fasting together on Monday or on Friday taking, different, taking turns to be able to, to, to pray within different time slots. Um, we want this to be a pivot moment. Um, what, we, what we hope in the middle of this um, is that something would, would shift in the way that we experience the reality of a God who hears us. Um, what we, what, what I, I believe is, I mean, one of the, the, the great phrases that's always stuck with me is, um, my, my first couple weeks at college, our, our college president said, um, I wouldn't give a fig for simplicity this side of complexity, but I would give anything for simplicity that, that side of complexity. And what he's saying is this, look, there are simple phrases that we've heard all our life. God is good, Jesus cares for me, Jesus loves me. But it's not only, and, 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 but it's not only in, in the simple phrases when they make sense. They, the, the power of these phrases happens when truly complex things happen. Um, when, these, when these simple truths get tested, and we could somehow, at the end of the day, at the end of it, say the same things, but with just deeper strength and conviction, what would it be like if, if at the end of however long this takes, we can actually say, oh my goodness, I prayed and the Lord heard me. That I felt more free in the quarantine of my home than I felt the, the, the rest of my life, because I, I, for the first time, I've really believed that when I prayed, God heard me, He met me, and He carried us through. Um, when, I was a, um, when I was growing up, I grew up a pastor's kid, and, and one of, the, one of the, thing, the moments I most remember um, is my dad, um, this one day when he was doing you know, this idea of, um, of simplicity on the other side of complexity, he brought up two people, he brought a young kid, I, I think they were about five, six years old, and he said, hey, do you, do you know that Jesus loves you? And the kid said, yes, I know that Jesus loves me. Um, and everybody thought it was cute, and everybody applauded. And then the kid sat down. And then right after that, he invited this old lady, um, 80 years old at the time. And he said, um, do you know that Jesus loves you? And she said, in a frail way, yes, I know Jesus loves me. And he said, how do you know that Jesus loves you? And he said, I've seen it time and time again in my life. 
And this moment that we're in, this unprecedented moment that we're in, is one of those moments we will remember for the rest of our lives. And our choice now is in the middle of it, will we plead and call out and cry out and will we see the deliverance of the Lord? Will we see the comfort of the Lord on, on, on families who are devastated? Will we pray blessing and healing, protection over, over people in our church and other churches um, who have medical workers who are being sent to the front lines directly in the middle of this fight? Um, will we call out for our friends who have lost jobs who are uncertain about the future? Will we pray for those in our church right now who are affected, um, who are with family members who are affected? Will we be a church that truly believes this? Um, that, that, that if we don't, if we stay silent, that even the rocks would cry out. That the calling out and the praising of Jesus is inevitable. Will happen with or without us, but we get this opportunity. We get this great opportunity to participate in the calling out and the crying of Jesus. Crying out to Jesus this week. And would you pray with me? Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, we pray with everything that people are struggling through. Everything that we cannot see and all the anxieties that people are facing about the coming weeks. Lord, we pray that you would meet us in our fear, anxiety, and would you make us a church who calls out and cries out to you. Would that become the norm? And would we find as we cry out to you that your mercies, your mercies are abundant and your power is sure and your love is steadfast. In the name of Jesus we pray.